us, is this the lunch loop? If so, um, we wish to cancel. Um, we do not wish to belong to that or to pay this anymore. Thank you. Hey everybody, welcome to the Lund Loop Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the intersection of life, trading, and markets. And today is a special episode, a bonus episode, because I have a particularly dry mouth today, and you're going to get lots of extra mouth sounds for no extra cost. How lucky are you? After I record the Lund Loop Podcast, I let it sit for about two hours, and then I review it. Because I want to make sure that I didn't say anything that would probably be better left unpublished. When I do this, I get in kind of a roll. I get kind of a brain dump mentality. And maybe not everything I say should go out into the public. 99% of the time, it's all good. But every now and then I have to say, nah, let's edit that out. But what I've realized or what I've noticed after listening to these for 22 episodes now is I have certain verbal tics. Things that I say when there's a gap in the conversation or things that I say when I am unsure, anxious about something. The three top ones are so, which I tend to use as a transition word too much. Basically, which I use to try to reinforce or wrap up a concept that I just over explained. And then right with like a question mark, like right. I've taken those three words. I was just going to say so there. I was just going to say so. I've taken those three. I've taken those three words and I've put them on a piece of paper. I've blown them up and bolded them and put them over my microphone. And I'm going to try and avoid saying those words this week. We'll see how I do. In a minute, I want to talk about trading life balance, as in trading hyphen life balance in the same way that they talk about work-life balance. But first, I want to give a little recap of my time at the Future Proof Festival this week. The Future Proof Festival is billed as the first and largest wealth festival, which seems kind of like an oxymoron. If it's the first, by definition, it's the largest, but whatever. And what it is is three and a half days of RIAs, money managers, and the public all hanging out. 2,500 people. What's really cool about it is the way Huntington Beach works is there's four major hotels right down by the water. On the inland side of PCH, which is Pacific Coast Highway, that's where the Pasea, the Hyatt, the Hilton, and I can't remember the other one are. But on the water side of PCH, that's where they erected the concourse, the stages, all the booths for the Future Proof Festival. And I thought that was really cool. Now, I didn't attend the festival itself because, number one, why would I want to listen to a bunch of RIAs talk for three and a half days? Number two, 3500 bucks. So, come on. However, a lot of people that I know through the FinTwit community were coming into town, which was a great opportunity to hang out. I very rarely get east of Las Vegas. It takes a funeral or a wedding to get me east of Las Vegas. And not only that, but a funeral or wedding for someone I really like. 
So most of my friends are on the East Coast, at least my FinTwit friends are on the East Coast, and there's very rarely a West Coast event for them to come to. So it was great to have a bunch of people that I knew uh, that I hadn't seen for a long time here in my hometown. Now, one of those groups was the All-Star Charts group, which is uh, J.C. Perrette's uh, company. And then my buddy Phil Perlman was in town, Chicago Sean, bunch of people. And one of the things that they wanted to do when they came into town was go to Vietnamese food. They know that my wife's Vietnamese and they were for months like, dude, you got to set us up for Vietnamese food. I'm like, yeah, no problem. So we met at this restaurant in Little Saigon called Quan Mi. Now, most people, when they think of Vietnamese food, there's two or three dishes that usually pop into their head. The first one, the most ubiquitous one is pho. Everybody knows about pho. The the beef noodle or sometimes chicken noodle soup. The other one is something called bunjaya, which uh, jaya is egg rolls and boon in this case is like noodles. So they take egg rolls, chop them up, put them in a bowl of noodles along with all these different vegetables, peanuts, and then you pour fish sauce on and eat it. Then the other thing that people usually know is bun mi. Bun mi are the baguette sandwiches that are heavily influenced from Vietnam's time as a colony of France. In fact, when I was first dating my wife, we'd been dating like five or six years, and I went on a trip to Paris with a friend of mine. And as I'm walking down the street, they have all these open delis and open brasseries, and the display cases in front had the exact same sandwiches that I saw over in Little Saigon. There are the baguette sandwiches that have either pate or shredded chicken. So you definitely see the influence there. But I wasn't going to take them to have pho, right? How are they going to... I just said it. I said, right. Ugh. Well, that's the first time. I should have like a swear jar when I say these things. I drop some money in there. So I'm not going to take them... I said, so. This is, this is tough. This is tough. I was not going to take them to have pho or anything they could have anywhere else. I wanted them to have some hardcore Vietnamese food. And we got to the restaurant. One of the guys goes, are we going to have pho? I'm like, no, you're not going to have pho. They don't serve pho here. Now, some of the people in the Discord asked me, well, what did I order for them? I'm not going to tell you everything because I threw the kitchen sink at them, but I will tell you a couple of the things that they really liked. And I'm going to try and pronounce the Vietnamese names for these things. You would think that my Vietnamese would be on point after 26 years. It is if I'm speaking to a two-year-old. I was really good at speaking to my kids when they were young because it's very basic. But the thing about Vietnamese that's tough is unlike English, which is a very monotone language, Vietnamese is a tonal language. They've got six different tones that can be put on the same word. So they've got a mid-level tone. There's a low rising tone, which starts low and goes up. There's a low falling tone, which starts low and goes down. There's a high rising tone, a high broken tone, which is a tone that starts high and then basically stops like you had something in your throat. And then there's a heavy tone, which I won't even try to describe. Depending on what tone you put on a word, it changes the word. For example, the word for mother, if you say it with a different tone, could mean ghost or it could mean horse. And it's just one letter from the word for whore. So when you, when I speak Vietnamese, I get a little self-conscious. It's also a monosyllabic language. 
which means every word just has one syllable. So as you are speaking Vietnamese with one syllable words and then in this singy songy way, it's like it's almost like like singing. And unless you are a professional singer, you know you're going to hit a wrong note. The problem is when you hit the wrong note in Vietnamese, it can totally change the meaning of what you say. Now, most Vietnamese people I've found are very appreciative of non-Vietnamese speakers trying to attempt their language. They're very forgiving, but I just get self-conscious. So I'm going to try and pronounce the Vietnamese names the best I can. If there are any Vietnamese uh, native speakers on this uh, listening to this podcast, please forgive me. All right. So the first thing that we ordered, that I ordered from them, that they really liked, is something called bun bao. And this is bun bao hue, which bun is the word for bread generally, but it has a lot of other meanings. It can mean cake, it can mean dumpling, sometimes it can mean noodle. It's it's can almost even mean food. So uh, bun bao hue is a steamed rice flour cake. So they take this almost like a batter and they pour it into a very small round dish. And then this hue, which is a city in Vietnam, the hue version is they put shredded pork, green onions, and a little chicharron on top. And the way you eat it, or at least the way I eat it, is you scoop it out from the, you loosen it from the little plate. You put a, a spoonful of nook mom, which is the fish sauce on it, and you do it like a shooter. And they love that. That was a big hit. Another one we did, um, and I'm going to totally uh, mangle this one, but it's Mam Tom Chua Hue, which is basically um, from the central coast of Vietnam. It's a shrimp that they serve with. Uh, it's fermented and they serve it with uh, like shredded papaya. That was a big hit. Another thing, and I won't even attempt the name on this one, but it's a papaya beef jerky salad. It's very th- thin strips of pi- papaya, thin strips of jerky, some um, some peppers that are like called uk. There's these uh, red peppers that are chopped very finely. And then you you grab a bunch with your chopstick and dip it in a sauce. So those were a big hit. Another thing that was a big hit, and this is what this restaurant is known for, is uh, something called bun seo. Bun, again, from the, the bread word, but in this case, it means batter. And seo is onomatopoeia. It's a word that represents the, the way the sound of the word represents the sound of what it's describing. So when you pour the batter into a hot pan, sale is like the sizzle sound, so bun sale. They pour the batter in the pan, they wait for it to get a little bit hard, and then they put in either, well, they start with bean sprouts, but then you can put pork or shrimp or squid, and then fold it over. And it's been described as a, I've heard it described as a Vietnamese pancake, a Vietnamese crepe. It's not quite a crepe, it's like crispier. But then you cut it up and you wrap it in rau. Rau is the term for the greens that you get with a dish, the lettuce, the mint, the basil, uh, strips of cucumber. Then you can wrap that in a piece of rice paper and then dip it in the nook mom. So they like that. They like the bun sale. Uh, the big hits, though, were the soups. Uh, JC particularly liked the soups. So I ordered two different soups. I ordered bunriel. Uh, which is uh, bun riêu chua, um, or sorry, bun riêu kua, which is um, crab meat noodle soup. So it's like a tomato-based soup with noodles in it and then like shredded crab. It's really good. And then the other one that I ordered was uh, bun bo hue, which is a beef noodle soup. Uh, 
And describing it as beef noodle soup does not do it uh, justice because it's got so many different um, ingredients. It's fantastic. And Bumba Hue is, again, Hue is the name that um, from the, the town Hue. So those are all big hits. The one that I did not get them that I should have is called Mi Guang. Mi Guang is a dish from central Vietnam. There's You find a lot of dishes from north, south, but not as many from central. And this one is a yellow noodle that has like pork ribs and uh, a broth. And uh, it's so hard to describe. But if you ever go to a Vietnamese restaurant, try, try Mi Guang. Huge hit. All these were huge hits. Their heads were exploding. I was very excited to... Uh, ex- to to expose people to Vietnamese food that was not just pho or bun jaya or uh, bun mi. So that was a big success. In terms of the event itself, there were a lot of takeaways I had, but I think the one that applies most for us in the Lun Loop is money managers are, boy, I don't want to say a blanket statement, but Money managers remind me a lot of brokers. Uh, RIAs remind me of brokers. Brokers were always thought of as just kind of um, cogs in the big machine that they worked for. They would go to work every day. Their investment department would say, here's what we're pushing. They'd call their clients and they would sell them stuff, right? Very transactional. I said, right. Mm." I think it's only the second time I said it. So I'm going to give myself, and I said, so. Ooh, this is so, <laughs> this is tough. This is tough. They sell their clients what the company is pushing and they make a commission. So they're, it's in their interest to churn the clients. An RIA is a little bit better because they usually get a percentage of the money that they're managing of the AUM, which means that they're, uh, interests are aligned with their client. The more that the client makes, the more they make. But RIAs today have turned into a version of a salesperson as well. They're just a placekeeper. And the reason why is because there's only three things that they tell you to do when you put your money with a RIA. Every RIA says the same thing. Stay invested. Don't, don't time the market. Rebalance and tax loss harvest. That's it. There's no extra special sauce that any that differentiates any RIA or money manager from any other. Now, you do get some RIAs that really care about their clients and they they provide that behavioral finance aspect where a client's freaking out because the market's going to tank and they talk them off the ledge. But most of them are just caretakers and that's what I saw out there is a bunch of caretakers. They don't want their clients actively trading. They don't even want their clients to take a little bit and actively trade. Now, I agree with that. I think 95% of people should have their money long-term invested. Now, whether that's with a professional or whether they can do it on their own, that's debatable. But they should be investing for the long-term. They shouldn't be trading. They shouldn't be actively investing. But I think some people, 5% of people out there, should take some of their money and be a little more active with it. And I don't think there's anything wrong with someone taking a small amount of their money, five, 10%, and scratching that itch. But RIAs don't want to push that for two reasons. Number one, most people lose money doing that. So they're gonna get mad if they lose money that their RIA let them do that. But the converse is, 
What if they make money? What if they beat the markets? Then they're going to look at their RIA and go, what do I need you for? So it's a double-edged sword for this whole industry. They just want you to be set it, forget it. Give me all your money. I'll put it in this wide diversified group of assets. You'll freak out when the market goes down. I'll tell you not to sell. We'll tax loss harvest. We'll rebalance. And 30 years from now, I'll retire on the beach in Florida. That's basically what it is. And I just, it's not my, it's not my scene. I don't like that. Um, so anyway, the, the, the festival itself was great. You know, it's put on by the Ritholtz guys, by Josh and Barry uh, Ritholtz and Mike. And I saw all those guys and they're cool guys. I like them, but it just, it's so different from the trader and active investor mentality. And um, it's just something I don't relate to, but it was great seeing my friends and, and uh, I'll probably be there again when they hold it next year. Uh, is this the Lund Loop? In the process of reviewing that previous section, it's very obvious that I have lost the war, the so basically and right war. So <laughs> I'm going to give up for this podcast. I got to figure out a way to eliminate those. Well, maybe not. Maybe nobody cares. I don't know. We'll see what happens. I'd like to talk now about trading life balance. Like I said in the intro, it's trading hyphen life balance. As in, how do we balance trading and life? For some people, that's not even a question. If you're a young go-getter or you're a professional in the market, you don't care about trading life balance. You just want to trade all the time. You want your nose on the screen, watching every tick, and that's your deal. And that's totally cool. Over the last 35 years, I have used every single method there is, from watching minute ticks to trying to be totally distant from the market and everything in between. And a lot of those approaches they work or they don't work depending upon what sort of market you're in. But they also work and don't work depending on what stage of your life you're in and how much life balance you want outside of the markets. I'm a big fan of Cal Newport. Cal Newport wrote the book Deep Work. He wrote the book A World Without Email. He's written Digital Minimalism. He's got a great podcast. And one of the approaches that he takes, he talks mostly about work-life balance and how you can attain that, that homeostasis. And one of the things that he talks about a lot is reverse engineering the process. And I get that because as I'm getting older, I'm understanding that before you start a project, it's a really good idea to have in mind how you want that project to end. That's not how I ran most of my life. I can blame it on ADHD, whatever, but that's not how I approach life. I remember vividly reading this book when I was uh, maybe 10, 11. I found this book in Pickwick at the South Coast Plaza Mall called The New Music. It was a weird book. It had been published in Australia. I don't even know how it found its way to Southern California. And it talked about all the new music that was going on in Australia, Europe, England, 
and a little bit in the United States. But instead of like looking from the United States out to the rest of the world, it was looking from Australia to the rest of the world. And it had these categories of music. It had punk and new wave and ska and metal and I can't even remember. And in a pre-internet world, it was fascinating. Some of these bands I knew a little bit about, but some I had no idea. Like there was this band I'd never heard of called In Excess. Like, what's this band about? And there were these bands like Split Ends and this band called Motorhead and the Eurythmics and all these weird bands I'd never heard of before. And I was fascinated by it. And we had a really cool scene going on out here in Orange County. Back then, you could walk around your neighborhood and every 10 or 11 garages, there would be a band. There'd be TSOL or China White or The Crowd or The Simple Tones. That's when punk was really going off here in Orange County and most specifically in Huntington Beach. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm going to write a book. I'm going to write a book just like this new music book. And I'm going to tell the world about what's going on out here in Huntington Beach. I'm going to expose the rest of the world to this fantastic music scene. And I sat down at my little manual typewriter I put a piece of paper in and I typed about seven lines and then I said, ah, I'll get back to this later. And 45 years later, I haven't done anything else on it. The problem is I didn't know what I wanted that book to end up looking like. I didn't know where I was going. I was, oh, I'll figure out a way. But when you, when you don't know where you're going or you don't have a, a North Star to, to, to try to hit, it's easy to go off track. So reverse engineering solves this problem. And going back to Cal Newport, when somebody calls in or has a question on his podcast about their career, what should I do with my career? You know, I could, I'm making good money doing this, but I don't enjoy that. And maybe I should go over here. He wipes all that out and he says, what is the lifestyle that you want? Let's start with that. What's the lifestyle that you want? Where do you picture yourself? both physically, are you, are you by the ocean? Are you in the mountains? Are you at a house that overlooks a meadow? Are you in an apartment in the city? And then what does your day look like? Are you getting up and being proactive and creative all throughout the course of the day? Are you collaborating with other people? Are there big chunks of time during the day when you're just contemplative or contemplative? Um, when you're reading, when you're thinking, when you're writing, are you married? Do you have kids? It goes through all these different things and then reverse engineers it. Here's the vision that I want to have and let's marry the career path so that it ends up at that lifestyle that I want. Everybody else starts the other way. Here's my career and then uh, I want to get to here and I'm going to do this, but there's no real idea at the end. I think you can take that same concept with trading. What sort of life trading balance do you want? Do you want to be the person that's looking at every single tick? If you do, that's totally cool. If you've got the energy, the focus, if that's what you like, great. I've been that person at certain points in my life. But right now, at almost 55, with two kids, with other ventures that I'm interested in, with this burgeoning Lunloop community, I'm not so sure that I want to, well, I shouldn't say I'm not so sure. I'm sure that I don't want to look at every tick at the market. Not only that, but for me, a big chunk of the trading day is 
uh, what's a good word for it, is um, problematic. For example, that whole middle section of the day, the market's open for six and a half hours. I'd say that four of those hours are just chop. Now, maybe it's because of recency bias. Maybe it's because of the type of market that we've had for the last year or so. But the way I... Hello, text. Uh, but the uh, the groove that I've gotten into is um, I want to be done with my trading. Well, let me back up. There's three types of days I have. The first type of day is the ideal day. It's a day where I am done by the first hour, first hour and a half maybe. The sooner the better. That was a day like we had on Thursday where... There were a bunch of setups. You could get in, you could make your money, you could be done, and that's it. And that first hour to hour and a half, I'm doing a couple things. Either, depending on the market um, that we're in, I'm trimming and managing trades that I held overnight. So for example, we're not in that sort of market now, but if we were in a trending market where you're swinging stuff, that first hour to hour and a half is managing overnight swings. Do you need to manage them? Do you need to take some off? Do you need to close them out? Are you closing out a partial that you held overnight? Is the market in a really strong trending uh, mode and you, you carried a full position overnight? Um, do you let it go? Do you trim it? You know, Basically, you know, trying to update what you already held. The second mode is initiating new trades in that first hour to hour and a half. Are there things that are triggering? Do I get a gap up that pulled back and based and now I want to get in? Do I get a gap down that reversed? But ideally you want to be done by, I don't know, 7.30, 8 o'clock Pacific time because the middle of the day is when you get that choppy motion. I don't, the, the, the farther into the day I'm initiating trades, the, the less successful they are. Now, there's a codicil to that, and this is the second version. This is the, you know, the first, the ideal situation is to be done by the first hour, hour and a half. The second most optimal is be done by the first hour, an hour and a half, and then trade again in the last hour, hour and a half. Because like we've seen in this market, you get these days where we're down, we're down, we're down. But then you get that one day where we're down in the beginning part of the day. We kind of base, we go sideways. It looks like we're going to rally midday. We fail, looks like. And then in the last hour, hour and a half, we start seeing a lot of things reverse. That's like a mirror image of those first 60 to 90 minutes. Maybe you're flat. Maybe you don't have any positions, but we've been down for a couple days in a row. You're going to start picking up some stuff. You're going to start scaling into some stuff with the idea that we're going to close strong. You'll get a, a move up at the open and then you'll do exactly what we talked before. You'll spend that first hour, hour and a half trimming or managing positions. All right, so those are the, you know, first optimal is be done by eight o'clock. Second optimal is trade in the first hour and a half, trade again at the end of the day. The worst type of day for me is when I'm involved all day long. That means I'm usually stuck in a position. That means I'm trying to repair damage that I did to myself. That means I'm probably scalping and over trading. So, Again, this has a lot to do with the, the, the market environment we're in. And it also has a lot to do with FOMO. FOMO is, you get FOMO when you 
take a chance on missing out on stuff. If I'm just trading during the first hour, hour and a half, or the last hour and a half, I, I may miss stuff intraday. But another aspect to this trading life balance is the universe of stocks I'm trading. I want to know which stocks I'm focusing on when the market opens the night before. I went through a period in time where I did scans pre-market to see what was gapping, what was the news, how I was going to play those stocks. But I just, I don't have that, um, I just can't do that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. So I have a fixed universe of stocks. You guys know it. It's my, my watch list. And I'll pull things in there from time to time. I'll take things out. And then I'll refine that to the orange list and the, the green list. And that's all I really want to focus on. But you have there's a trade-off. The trade-off is, well, what if none of those stocks trigger? Or what if those stocks are not what's in right now? We had a couple weeks ago where coal stocks were going higher or potash stocks were going higher, uh, utility stocks. And you know, we've had energy stocks going higher. Those are not my preferred uh, trading vehicles. You know, I want to be in the the tech stocks. I want to be in the chip stocks. I want to be in the financials, uh, to some extent, biotechs, you know, housing when they're working. When you decide that you're going to limit yourself because you don't want to be looking all over and getting distracted, you also have to give up the fact that you might have to sit on your hands for a while. But here's the thing. That's totally okay. I mean, would you rather do a hundred trades a month and make X amount of money or do 50 trades a month and make X amount of money. I'd rather do 50. I'd rather do less trades and make the same amount. You have to have the discipline to say, yeah, my sector or my names are not in play right now. And I'm not going to force my hand by trading things that I don't like, or I'm not comfortable with. I like stocks that I'm familiar with, that I know the spreads that I know, how they act. I, I, I never want to get in a situation where like I'm too cocky and I think I know the stock back and forth, but like I'd rather take 5, 10, 15, 20 stocks and get to know them inside and out than to try and say, I can trade anything and get some thin ADR and try to trade that or, or some, uh, you know, uh, super speculative uh, biotech stock. So again, I think the whole thing is start with what the ideal situation is. What's your life like right now? Do you have the time to sit and watch the market all day long? Do you want to watch the market all day long? Should you watch the market all day long? You may want to watch the market all day long, but you may have two kids that really want your attention and they're growing up and you're going to miss out. Or you may have a wife who uh, you know, is looking at the, uh, the golf pro because you're not giving her enough attention, right? Or you may have some parents that are getting older, not going to be around all that long. And you should be, you know, going over and having lunch with them, but you're sitting there watching some stock barcode in the middle of the day. I'm just saying, you got to think about those things. You also have to think about how much the market can fuck with you, fuck with your mind. You know, should you be watching every tick? Is it better to be strategic and then, you know, go do something else. Be more productive, write, go to the beach, read a book, call a friend, start a new business. These are questions we all have to ask ourselves. There's no right or wrong answer. I know people that have their nose in the market every minute 
of the day. And from what I can tell, they seem to be very well-adjusted people. They seem to have good lives. Great. I also know people that are super hands-off in the market. They make very few trades. They only trade when the market is in, in, in the best mode, when they have the biggest edge, and they don't sweat if they miss a day, a week, even a month. And then there's everybody in between, and we just have to figure out where we want to be. But I think it starts with that reverse engineering. Where do I want to be? What sort of quality of life do I want? And then how can I formulate a trading methodology and process that makes sure that I can have that type of life? Um, I would like to repeat that want to be canceled from the Lund Loop whatever you've got me on um if you wish to call and explain what it is uh actually uh forget that Well, that's it for this episode. If you got any questions, hit me up at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at thelunloop.com. I'll see you next time. Bye.